Sir Balfour, the Duo de Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance. He's managing editor of Fangraphs. Dave Cameron is who it is. It's Dave Cameron. It's not a surprise. It's Dave Cameron. He's here every Monday. What follows as he does every Monday, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular interest this week, Dave Cameron attended, not merely attended, also spoke at the Sloan Analytics Conference, perhaps the MIT Sloan Analytics Conference. It's uh, largely a focus on basketball, but there's some baseball discussion there, obviously, because Dave Cameron appeared on a panel uh, with uh, Jonah Carey of Grantland and the author of several books, and Sandy Alderson, who's the GM of a Major League Baseball team, Ben Lindbergh, who was, of course, important person at Baseball Prospectus, now also at Grantland, and uh, Mr. Brooks, Mr. Dan Brooks of Brooks Baseball, a uh, great resource for PitchFX information. Dave Cameron appeared there. In what follows, we uh, address a m- number of the themes considered at the Sloan Analytics Conference, at least the baseball part of it. We address those. We take a brief detour to talk about uh, uh, what I consider a great piece that Jeff Sullivan wrote last week uh, concerning um, – it was called We're Good Players, Also Good Prospects. He looks at uh, players – it sort of inverts this uh, how these studies typically occur. He says these were the good players. They all produced three wins. Where did they come from? Where were they ranked on the prospects? I think it's great. Dave Cameron, who also thinks very highly of Jeff Sullivan, says, well, maybe this is not as revolutionary as you think it is, Carson. I say I don't care. Anyway, <clears throat> but mostly we discuss the Sloan Conference. We discuss the Sloan Conference. And most importantly, uh, we, we examine the set of circumstances uh, that led Dave Cameron to make an utterance not unlike this one. I pointed out that there was probably someone in the audience with an expertise in machine learning uh, that could, you know, teach the robot how to uh, stick his giant thumb in the air and, and say, F you and your sister. Fangraphs Audio features managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. to Boston or Cambridge or where is it now for the Sloan and uh, Boston yeah, it's, it's held at the uh, the giant convention center right outside the airport okay so you went there for a weekend yep and now and now you're going to go to Arizona for a long weekend yes how does your uh, how's your wife uh, uh, feel about these sorts of things on account of the newborn child you have yeah, she uh not a huge fan of me traveling, but uh, thankfully her parents live 20 minutes from us, and so she went over and, and hung out with them for oh, a few yeah, days and let yeah. them take care of the grandkid and feed her. And, uh, so having having uh, familial help was, uh, was nice. Having grandparents in the area seems like it could be – well, it's different. Uh, it, uh, let's see. There are probably advantages and disadvantages to having in-laws in town or having yeah. one's own in- parents in town, but having grandparents – uh, seems like a pretty big advantage. Yeah, I think uh, having in-laws around uh, was less advantageous before the kid and is now much more advantageous. Yeah, the downside right. of having in-laws within proximity uh, goes, uh, I don't know, way down or way up. Anyway, it gets better <laughs> when there's a kid involved. Yeah, it does, yeah, because they can take care of the kid. Uh, and kids, uh, you need to look after them. I, I know we had this conversation a couple weeks ago about a child, about having a kennel for children. You yeah. pointed out that it's not legal. 
Yeah, uh, I did. Endeavor, yeah. So you went to Sloan. Uh, you wrote about Sloan. You wrote about uh, Commissioner Manfred's talk. Uh, at, Primar- primarily. Yes. Primarily, yeah. But I, I'm curious. Is first of all, uh, well, here, first of all, uh, a gentleman. Well, let's refer to him as David Dusek. Dusek or Dusek? I don't know who you're talking about. Well, so. he is a senior writer at uh, Golf Week magazine. Uh, okay, and still, still no idea. Well, he said to me on uh, Twitter, he said, you need to ask Dave Cameron what compelled him to just say, F you man and your sister on stage <laughs> at Sloan. Yeah, that was uh, maybe the one like slightly uh, borderline thing that I, that I said that was maybe uh, not regrettable, but, um, <laughs> you know. Potentially could have gotten me in some trouble and might not get me uninvited to future events. Uh, he, was, so, he seemed to be tickled by it, is my point. Yeah, I mean, no, the goal was to get laughs, right? Uh, mm. So someone, I think Jonah, had asked uh, the panel about robot umpires, which is a, a favorite topic of his, Jonah being Jonah Carey of Grantland. Uh, he, so he brought up the concept or the question of if, the hypothetical, I guess, if robot umpires were a logistical possibility, would you be in favor of them? And Sandy Alderson, who's the general manager of the New York Mets, talked about how he uh, probably wouldn't be because he really likes kind of the theatrics of the manager-human uh, umpire interaction, you know, referencing Billy Martin and Earl Weaver and kind of the, you know, the arguments to uh, uh, that these guys get into coming on the field, throwing the hats, you know. It's part of baseball, and it has been part of baseball for a long time. I pointed out that there was probably someone in the audience with an expertise in machine learning uh, where they could, you know, teach the robot how to uh, stick his giant thumb in the air and then say, F you and your sister and uh-huh. cause an argument. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe people found it funny, but most, I think, didn't quite get it. Oh, yeah. I think it seems very amusing. You weren't even saying it to anybody. I thought you were pointed at someone in the audience who was like, <laughs> F you and your sister. Yeah, I did not. I was uh, I was saying that a robot could be trained to say that. A robot could be trained to, to say, especially right, because yeah. you're in. Well, this is an MIT sponsored event, is it not? It is. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to find it at any place, I'm sure it's happening already on the campus of MIT. I would imagine that somebody has probably trained a robot to speak profanities. Yeah. Now, um, <clears throat> a quick side note: uh, it has not. I have actually not been there. Um, I don't live that far from Boston, but uh, it has been. It has been. Um, relayed to me that Boston it appears as though is a place that has been – it's basically on the brink of uh, collapse. Did you did you observe that? From all the snow? Yeah, from all the snow. Uh, so I did observe like, you know, 15-foot high snow drifts. Yeah. Uh, there were sometimes walking on the sidewalks that it felt like you were at a ski resort or something. I mean, there was, some, there was still a lot of snow around. Uh, I think we were pretty lucky in that it was just cold while we were there. We didn't get a ton of snow or any snow, really. Yeah. Uh, and the city didn't appear to be on the verge of chaos, at least. Yeah. Well, you uh, you may or may not know that the public transit is not working uh, at anything like full capacity. Um, and uh, anyway, it's been referred to as a slow-moving nat- uh, natural disaster. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you, I think you could tell that uh, people were pretty tired of, of snow. I mean, every mm-hmm. cab I would get in or – Every local I would talk to, they would be like, yeah, spring's almost here. This will still probably all be here when we have spring. <laughs> uh, now, you, it sounds like you were on some sort of panel, and uh, uh, at least Jonah Carey, as you mentioned, and uh, what, Mets GM? Is he a GM, Sandy Alderson? Yeah, Sandy Alderson, yes. Uh, what, 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 are they, what, are you, what do they, they want a person like Dave Cameron to say with these people? 
Uh, yeah, also Ben Lindbergh and Dan Brooks also oh, on the well, panel. So. Them. Yeah, Ben Lindbergh, of course, currently also of Grandline, formerly of Baseball yep. Prospectus, and, uh, yep. and uh, uh, Dan, Dan Brooks. Of Brooks Baseball. Brooks Baseball, uh, Pitch FX uh, expert. And uh, uh, also, uh, I think he is the – he organizes uh, that great event that happens the in Saber, August. Saber Seminar, yes. Saber Seminar, which helps to – which helps people – which helps uh, get rid of cancer. Uh, yeah, I mean, all the proceeds from his event, uh, go to the Jimmy Fund, which is pretty, pretty great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one of the things that Dan and I were joking around about is, uh, that this panel was like three-fourths of the Sabre Seminar, but presented at MIT Sloan. It was like, hey, if you want to hear these exact same people talk, you know, minus maybe Sandy Alderson, uh, you can just come again in August. We'll have the same group, because Ben and I have, uh, the last couple of years, uh, kind of done like a, a two-man show to end, end the, uh, Saber Seminar were kind of like the last thing on. Um, so I think, you know, is uh, certainly a group I was comfortable with besides, you know, Mr. Alderson, who I, uh, you know, maybe not someone I was going to say F you and your sister to. No, don't. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah but besides that, you know, it was a good group of people that I was pretty familiar with. And I think, uh, you know, baseball is in a kind of a situation where um, there was things to talk about that maybe I had some things to say uh, based on, you know, some of the economic stuff and some of the ways baseball is changing. And, um, you know, why else they asked me? I think they had probably just, you know, lost their marbles. Yeah. What, so what was the theme of the panel on which you spoke? So it was called Beating the Shift, uh, but then we only talked about the shift for like two minutes. Uh, I think that was just like a play on words, essentially, talking about like maybe the shift in baseball, not necessarily defensive positioning, but things shifting. Right. Um, and so we just kind of covered a broad variety of topics of kind of what you'd expect a bunch of baseball nerds to talk about in the middle of February. We talked about the Juan Mancata situation. We talked about an international draft. We talked about StatCast. We talked about replay. We talked about pace of play. Like, all kind of the issues of the winter, um, you know, those were the ones that we kind of batted around. Um, pun intended? Uh, sure. Okay. Maybe not yeah. intended intentionally, but yeah. maybe subconsciously. Somewhere. Subconsciously, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those are sort of the themes um, I guess, oh, a brief footnote to yours. Uh, in discussing um, com- new Commissioner Rob Manfred's comments, you relay that he made a distinction, and I, I guess I should have known that there was a distinction between these two things, but uh, he made a distinction between pace of play and length of game. Could you uh, elaborate on that? Yeah, so I think uh, in his conversation with Brian Kenny, uh, Brian asked him kind of specifically if he was concerned about baseball games lasting three hours. And he noted that he just isn't really concerned that uh, baseball games last three hours. He said, you know, you can have a very entertaining sporting event that goes that length of time. Uh, the NFL is, uh, uh, you know, generally running about 315, 320 with their games. Uh, and, you know, not too many people are complaining about the length of NFL games. I think as long as there's enough entertainment during those three hours, and this was Manfred's perspective as well, is that, you know, the extra 10, 15, 20 minutes have been added on over the last decade or so are kind of irrelevant. The problem is that if you have 30, 40 minutes of stall time where guys are just walking around on the mound or standing out of the batter's box getting signs or adjusting themselves or, you know, the various things baseball players do that have nothing to do with baseball, uh, that can get a little tedious, and that's really what he's focused on improving. Right. And uh, he also discussed the potential... Uh international draft what 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 does it seem like is the state of affairs so far as that's concerned well clearly he wants one i mean he's made no secret of that even before this conference but i think one of the interesting things when that was brought up is he kind of clarified a little bit that they're not going to push solely for an international draft just to replace this international spending system that they have but they're open to basically any idea that 
creates what he called a single point of entry or a single method of entry, which I think is probably a reasonable uh, end goal. If you're going to say, like, we basically want it to be a level playing field so that a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old or whoever it is coming from the U.S. or Guam or, uh, you know, Costa Rica or Puerto Rico or wherever uh, has basically the same system to enter into the sport, uh, I think that's probably a good idea. Now, is it logistically possible? That's another question. Is it something that, um, you know, other countries are going to go for or other governments are going to want to be involved in? That's going to be problematic uh, to work things out. Well, if, right he embraced now, the, if he embraced Dave Cameron's proposal, uh, he would not necessarily need the cooperation of other governments. That's true. I don't think that he's going to embrace Dave Cameron's proposal. Just uh, I'm, I'm From his comments, it sounds like his initial priority would be to try and implement a global draft so that every player in one draft, and you could select you know, a high school kid from the U.S. or a Latin prospect, uh, and you could choose between them, and it's just one big pool. Uh, I think secondary to that, he, he didn't mention that they would be okay with two separate drafts. Maybe you have an international draft and a domestic draft, kind of like you have now. Um, so I think you know, they're open to multiple pathways to this kind of single entry, but he wants the rules to be the same for all all people, right. uh, which is going to be not not as easy as it sounds. Right. So you do the draft, whether it's an, like an Uber draft or you have two separate ones, and essentially, I mean, this is what a draft is, right? You're drafting, you you dra- when you draft a player, that's not actually what's the thing that's happening is you are reserving the exclusive rights to sign him. Yes. For for a uh, for a select like what is it now like three months or something you get to sign the guy? Uh, like a month. Yeah. A month. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> right, and so so at its very basic at a very basic level. A draft is just what you selecting an order uh, for you to claim the rights, exclusive rights to sign uh, to sign this or that player. Correct. Yeah. Right. But but there's a, a lot of difficulty that comes in when you talk about um, integrating that with other countries and then maybe countries uh, on with, with which we're not on the best terms. Yeah, and I think you know one of the things he mentioned is that there would have to always be a carve out for Japanese professional players. Like you're just not going to have a you know Koji Uehara get go into a first year player draft and get you know exclusive rights to sign for five hundred thousand dollars with whoever drafted him or you know Ichiro or one of these guys. They're just always going to be accepted from this. So I think that's going to be maybe where the rubber meets the road is how many carve outs do they want to have in the system, right? So if they do like a worldwide draft or an international draft. And we say right up front, like Japan, the professional players in Japan's NPB leagues are excluded from this and they don't apply. Uh, then does the Cuban government say, like, well, what about guys in Siri Nacional? Like, are they also going to be carved out? Like, Jose Abreu is not that different than Masahiro Tanaka. Uh, you know, maybe both of these guys should fall into the same system. And then maybe the Korean league gets in there and says, like, well, you know, maybe we don't have quite as much talent as those guys, but young Hong Kong was a professional playing for us and, uh, you know, making a good amount of money, maybe he should also be exempt. And so um, where they would draw the line, it might be based on age. Um, it might be based on, you know, arbitrary things that they just decide to carve out here and carve out there. But I think that's going to be really one of the tricky things is how you decide who goes into the draft and who doesn't. Well, I mean, part of it, right, is like when you – like if you're not going to pay Ichiro Suzuki, if you're not going to pay Koji Uehara more than they would make in their um, in their country – they're not going to come. They're not yeah. going to come, right? And, right. It, and yeah. there has to be even, like, uh, I think, it, correct me if I'm wrong, there's probably some romance for a Japanese player tied to playing in the major leagues because it's the oldest 
such league. But if but there has to be a dollar amount above and beyond what they can make. Because who is it? Uh, Abe, the catcher who's yeah. played for Yomiuri for some time. Yeah. I mean, I uh, all signs indicate that he could have that he could have been a fine major leaguer. Um, you know, he could have played at some at some level, but he just never came over. Presumably because his deal with Yomiuri was satisfactory to him. Yeah, I mean, I think it doesn't necessarily have to be more money, but it has to be competitive, right? Like, you can't take a guy like Ichiro, who's making, I don't know, whatever the equivalent was, like 7 or 8 or $9 million his last year in Japan, stick him into an international draft and be like, well, now you're going to get a $3 million <laughs> signing bonus yeah. and you get to make $500,000 a year until you're arbitration eligible. Like, that's not going to fly. So you, you at least have to be close uh, to the point where they're not taking a giant pay cut to come over. Right, and it will also point out that they're actually American players who who you would think who are not necessarily going to Japan for uh, for cultural exploration. Right, uh, but like Casey McGee and C.J. Nitkowski and uh, Vladimir Ballantin. Vladimir Ballantin. I mean, they're they're yeah. these are not American players necessarily, but right. but you would assume that all three of those players we just named would feel more comfortable in North America right. than they would in uh you know in in the middle of the Pacific in Asia. Uh, but they go there obviously because they're they're going to be making more money. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, I think for there's only so many major league jobs, and there are guys who are you know kind of triple A, four A guys who can do better in Japan than they can in the United States. And I think, you know, uh, as major league baseball kind of considers this worldwide draft, they're going to have to consider uh, kind of those types of players and whether they're going to create a demand for you know Japanese or Cuban or whatever leagues to start kind of picking off more of those types in response. Yeah, I've been looking a little bit at uh, how players, uh, how amateurs uh, became part of the, they're mostly amateurs, how they became part of the American Professional League. And I, I was reminded of the Alfonso Soriano situation. Soriano was what? He's a Dominican player who was somehow, uh, his rights belonged to a Japanese team. Yeah, he went to Japan for a year. Yeah, he went to Japan for. Uh, I mean, that's is that the end of the story? How how come that doesn't happen more often? And 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 why was Soriano not signed out of the Dominican to begin with? Yeah, I don't remember exactly uh, the details offhand, but I think so. Players do have the rights to do this. There's been other players like uh, um, who've gone to Mexico and then signed through their Mexican league teams. So you can you know get up and go kind of establish residency almost as you would like if you were applying to college and you wanted in state tuition you could just move there for the final year of high school or move there after you graduate and not attend for a year uh, and then and then be considered an in-state student you can kind of do that with other countries as well why Soriano was the only one to do that I don't, I don't recall right offhand but it is a path that players could pursue if they wanted to most just don't want to do you think that the I mean what what is the how robust is Japanese scouting outside not just of Japan, but outside of Asia. Do, do they have a presence in the Dominican, do you know? I would assume so. I mean, you you got to think, like, the so Japanese teams might not be operating on the same financial scale as Major League Baseball teams, but they're still competitive teams that want to win. They're trying to acquire talent. They know that not all of their talent can come from Japan, so I would assume that they're probably scouting uh, the Dominican and, and Cuba and some of these places, maybe not just as closely as Major League teams, but closely enough to where... They're focused on the kind of players that they could get. I mean, they probably knew that they weren't going to get Yohan Mankata, but they're probably uh, watching the International League and the Pacific Coast League and those kinds of talent bases pretty carefully. Yeah, well, isn't there a Cuban player, Frederick Cepeda, playing? Uh, um, playing? Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, several uh, Cuban players are playing in the Japanese League. Right. Right. Yeah, okay. 
Well, maybe I'll ask Kylie about that next time we speak. This seems like a good plan. Seems like it would be a good plan. Uh, among the panels uh, that you attended at Sloan, one was uh, conducted by Dan Rosenheck. And I want I want his findings to be true. There's nothing that I want more, especially at this time of year, um, to be true than to learn that spring training stats have some sort of relevance. And I do – and I know Jeff Sullivan wrote a piece two years ago. It got my hackles up a little bit about how meaningless spring stats were. And uh, I, it's not because – it was not – my hackles were not uh, raised by um, because of reason. I was not employing reason, but it was because I want – spring to matter at some level but can you can you maybe elaborate on uh, Rosenheck's presentation so I, I missed the first half of it which was a little disappointing uh and and really only arrived for the conclusions of it uh, <laughs> uh thankfully though i do have like some kind of uh friendship relationship with dan Rosenheck to where uh i was able to speak with him for a good while after his presentation along with another friend of ours who happens to work in baseball uh and so we kind of chatted about um, you know, his conclusions and kind of how the process went and um, got to pick his brain a little bit and he agreed to send over the data. And um, So I plan on writing about his presentation more and kind of giving it a more thorough overview. But based on the conversation I had with him after his talk, it seems like, and I could be wrong about this, but my inclination is not so much that he's showing exactly that spring training stats matter as much as he believes that current projection systems are too slow in responding to recent data as a whole. So it seems like, uh, again, without looking completely through his data set, that his his personal projections are going to respond more quickly to any kind of small sample uh, outlier performance that's significantly different than a player's previously previous performance. So like J.D. Martinez last year, Jake Arrieta, or one of these guys, his argument seems to be that you should see significant changes in projection very quickly uh, with those guys, and that's why spring training stats show more predictive kind of performance in his projections than they do in others is because there's more weight being put on recent performance, including, uh, you know, spring training performance because it happens to be the most recent data we have in March. Now, is your, is your sense of his, and again, it, you're, you're totally excused if you haven't uh, perused the data set at all. Do you, do you sense that he is uh, – putting weight on those sorts of metrics which tend to become reliable more quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So Dan's certainly not just looking at, like, you know, batting average. He's right. looking at, you know, changes in swinging strike rate, strikeout rate, you know, uh, walk rate, power, like things that uh, more more identify skills and not just fluky results. Uh, and I think, you know, he looked at velocity, and he's he's definitely looking at things that could be telltale signs of injury, uh, especially for guys in the downturn where, you know, I think that's one of the things that we we kind of do know is that if a guy who generally throws 94 comes up to spring training throwing 88, that's a pretty big warning sign, and maybe all of a sudden you need to adjust his projection downwards. I think uh, Dan's probably looking at metrics like those in order to build his kind of uh, forecast based on – or forecast adjustments based on spring training stats. Right, and I think that – that's that. That's a point that needs to be made more clearly. Is when you is when you're talking about spring training stats. You're right. On the one hand, you have, uh, you know, on un- uh, batting average and and uh, you know, you, if you look at it like even anything from the slash lines, that's going to that's never really going to help you because it's never because it, it in no case over 100 plate appearances or whatever is that going to help you. But yeah, like things like velocity, it would seem like, or for a pitcher, I, for a pitcher, I have a bit strikeout rate. I feel like. I feel like some combination of Matt Swartz 
and maybe Mike Podhorzer or someone like this. They did some work uh, a couple years ago on integrating spring training numbers, like these sort of more defense-independent type uh, numbers, into projections, and it, it and that in, that helped uh, um, that strengthened the projection as well. Yeah, I think 538 wrote something about this last spring too. So this isn't like the first time this has been done, but you know certainly it's going against kind of the common perceived sabermetric wisdom that spring training stats are worthless. And he, Dan actually used a comment of mine uh, in his presentation where I've made that statement, and I, I you know I think I would still mostly make that statement. He hasn't completely won me over yet, so uh, I'll be interested to read through his kind of uh, his paper and, and maybe talk with him a bit further. And I would imagine if he's right about this. Uh, this will be a conversation that doesn't just happen at Sloan and goes away. Uh, you know, we'll, this will ex- require further exploration. Right. Okay. Uh, anything else with regard to Sloan that we ought to address before we move yeah, on? Yes. So I think uh, as great as the conference is and, and as much as I enjoyed going, I will suggest, if, especially if uh, the organizers happen to listen to this podcast, uh, that maybe next year, early in the morning, they need to invite um, uh, or need to have a panel on queuing theory, which is for those who don't know, that's kind of like the the study of lines and how uh, different organizations should um, kind of handle, uh, you know, whether you're you're placing two or three, you know, different lines with different cashiers, that kind of thing. It's basically the study of optimization of of waiting in line, uh, because you know the convention center where this thing is held, uh, you know, when the conference ends, a lot of people wanted to go outside and catch a cab to go to dinner, and you know when you have a lot of people all at once trying to catch cabs. You have taxi stands, which, you know, they exist at airports and hotels and pretty common. So there was a pseudo taxi stand, uh, outside of the Boston Convention Center with maybe the least effectively run taxi stand in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, Slappelman and I, uh, waiting to go, uh, to dinner on Friday night ended up getting grabbed, uh, and said, okay, you guys are going to some certain hotel along with all these other people who are going to some restaurants who are going to these hotels and the tea garden and all these places. We're going to stick you all in this one cab, uh, which is, you know, a van, a 12-person passenger van. Uh, the the van we were placed into with no uh, kind of uh, communication uh, was going in, yeah, I don't know, five or six different neighborhoods, uh, none of which were all that close together. And then uh, as everyone was released, uh, you know, six or seven blocks from where they were trying to go because it was inconvenient for the driver to get there. He then asked every single person getting out of the van, all 12 of us, for $10 in cash for maybe the worst taxi ride I've ever had in my life. Uh, I would venture to say, like, this was the taxi version of Delman Young tracking a fly ball in center field. So I think, is it particularly auspicious because, or inauspicious, maybe it's inauspicious. I think that's what it is. Uh, Because... You have uh, it's like essentially it's a conference for nerds who yeah who uh, who's uh, it's literally what is Sloan Analytics Conference yeah MIT has the word, Sloan Sports Analytics yeah yeah it has the word analytics in it yeah the uh, first word so, is MIT and then and then analytics <laughs> is after that and so you would think that there would be some discussion over how to best uh, how to best move move the, all these people around. This seems like the kind of event at which efficiency of moving people should be uh, some some kind of discussion. 
uh, I think, you know, we were so not like hostile. I mean, we were all in kind of fairly good mood and the fact that we were, you know, uh, we were cognizant of the fact that at least we had a cab, which was kind of nice, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there was a lot of scorn being heaped upon this uh, really terrible system. And then as soon as someone left, I actually got a note on Twitter from someone who had been in the van who recognized my voice from the podcast and uh, <laughs> so wished me good luck in getting to my destination. Uh, but I thought it was amazing that one cab driver could drive 12 people to uh, kind of like on a, a circus tour of Boston, not getting any of them to their destination, certainly not in a timely fashion, and then charge $120 for the right to do so. Sounds like he, that person has it figured out. If you want he to just have a panel on how to scam people <laughs> yeah, out of money. A, like that guy <laughs> is uh, a freaking genius. He's he's the one selling the shovels during the gold rush. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think if he was selling them, they would have like not had handles. Or something. <laughs> yeah, and you would have still bought them for some reason. Right. They, they would have had, like cost twice as much as they should have and, and been defective. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to look at the person, the <laughs> the the one who's uh, figured it out, it is the cab driver who charged who got a hundred twenty dollars for driving. Nobody anywhere. <laughs> yeah, at least know where they wanted to go. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> where he wanted them to go. That's yeah, actually, right. That's actually... <laughs> My favorite part was there was a, a female on the trip who was trying to go to the to the tea garden, which is you know the former Boston Garden. Yeah. And uh, when he stopped uh, to let her out, she looked at her phone and she's she like, "My phone says this is like a ten minute walk from where we're trying to go." And he still and then she's like, "Can I use credit cards?" He's like, "I would much prefer cash." So not only was he like. <laughs> Not taking her to where she had requested after he had like taken her to three other stops that she wasn't trying to go on. He then charged her ten dollars in cash, which she didn't have, uh, and was like a little bit indignant when she tried to use a credit card after he bo- dropped her off a ten minute walk away from the garden. Yeah, so he was he had hubris as well. <laughs> he was uh, he was running quite the operation. Yeah. Uh, okay. You've you've had you've had your say, Dave Cameron. Yeah, I told the guy who tweeted at me that we would discuss the terrible cab ride on the podcast. So yeah. there you go, t- guy who rode in the cab with us. We're sorry about that. Let's discuss uh, one of our a piece by one of our authors from this past week. We've done that before. Uh, his name is Jeff Sullivan. You're familiar. I am familiar. You're familiar. Uh, he does, uh, of course, he does a lot of great work for Fangraphs.com. Uh, one piece about which I was particularly enthusiastic. Or, and I think he well he did because we're in the we're in a a, a dead zone a little bit for for baseball content, and actually it's been fun to watch uh, Jeff produce two posts a day based on this. He has he's really going after the pitch uh, pitch comp. <laughs> he's done a lot of work with that. Yeah, he's digging that well very deeply. Yes, he is. He's got a lot of mileage. Um, but one thing he did that I thought uh, is um, was important because it was a question that was subtly elegant. I thought. I thought it was subtle and simultaneously elegant. Uh, it was a post he wrote called, How Many Good Players Were Good Prospects? And the uh, and the thing that I think was smart about this is because typically, as Sullivan notes, uh, and as I noted to myself in my head, uh, typically this, this question is done the other way. It's, is uh, If you have a prospect 1 through 10, what does he become as a professional, right? Or, you know, if, if you prospect in this particular range on Baseball America's list or if, uh, in the draft – what does he what does he become? Jeff said, "How many good players were good prospects?" And this uh, he used the top he used Baseball America, um, not because he uh, wanted to embarrass Baseball America at all, but because he regarded it as I think the uh, the sort of gold standard for prospect analysis over the last what like twenty five years now is that right thirty years yeah twenty five yeah, years twenty five yeah. years yeah. yeah so um 
And he found uh, he found that if you have a prospect uh, ranked one through fifty on the list, that's good. That guy usually uh, uh, will produce three or more WAR fifty um, percent uh, of the time, or any in any given season. Um, the players who've produced three or more WAR, three or more wins, uh, uh, but over a little over half of them were in the top fifty, uh, and then another um, another like about around twenty percent, fifteen twenty percent were fifty to one hundred, and then uh, quite a few, almost nearly a third in some cases uh, were uh, were not were not ranked at all. Um, but the, this is, now we, we we've spoken offline briefly about this. You say that uh, maybe I'm a dummy for for being so excited about this particular work. Well, I think, like, I mean, I like Jeff, but I don't think this is the first time anyone's ever done this kind of breakdown and try to figure out, like, you know, uh, what are the, what are the proportion or kind of what are the demographics of major league players and good major league players or the demographics of all stars. I think even Baseball America has done something like this prior where around the all-star break or, uh, based on leaderboards, they kind of break down and say, where were the, where were these guys ranked in the Baseball America list? Usually it's, uh, done in a kind of self-congratulatory way, especially if they're promoting their own rankings they're going to tell you how well they did and there's publication bias in there if they had done really poorly they probably wouldn't have published that kind of post uh but it was good to see jeff kind of tackle it from a a different angle and obviously since he wasn't trying to promote baseball america's rankings then there was less conflict of interest involved uh but you know i think it kind of confirms what we've read before is that in general baseball america does a pretty good job um but at the same time they also miss a lot of guys which is just part of the nature of trying to project 18 19 20 year olds in the major leagues yeah, but I, uh, uh, I guess it's um, is it well if, if if we do it in Baseball America, that's one point. I've been working on a little bit of, um, I've been gathering some data on where these same sorts of good players, right, players three or more WAR, uh, where they come from even before they're on the base, right. So the the thing is with the top 100 prospects, you unavoidably have to go through a sort of filter, right? Uh, you have to say, well, base, this is what Baseball America thought, and even if you agree that baseball america has been the uh the gold standard by this measure you still it's, it comes down to a bunch of individuals who are not associated specifically with an organization i've been looking at some data recently to see where these where players actually came from and it seems like um and i'll publish this uh, sometime this week probably uh, uh high school high schoolers and uh college guys four-year college guys make up about a third you know 35 percent each of this list, and then internationals like 2025, and then JC is after that. But I don't know. Does it seem like if you if you start to have this information that you could start to get a sense of um, it, I don't know. It seems like it could inform future decisions, or it, it could help us understand decisions the baseball teams are making. Uh, so to some extent, I think when you're looking at any given prospect, you care more about the other question, right? Like, what are the odds this player becomes a major league player than you care about? given a major league player is already good, where did he come from, right? So the, this question is less helpful for uh, kind of analyzing the future abilities of any individual player. But I think what it does kind of give you is a sense of, uh, you know, maybe how confident you should be in those rankings as a whole, right? So if you say, okay, this player's, you know, the number 12 prospect, and this player's the number 67 prospect, and this player's the number 294 prospect or unranked or whatever you want to describe him as, what's the marginal difference in kind of, uh, or the kind of the emphasis you'd be willing to place on those. And this, you know, these kinds of conversations or rankings kind of tell you, look, if one third of all major league players came from unranked prospect lists, that there's a huge portion of value to be gained from still diving into those kinds of players and not just casting someone aside because they're not a top 100 guy, which is what I think we see 
a decent amount of fans do. We're talking about, you know, trade value or, uh, you know, making a transaction. They say, well, I only want, I only want this guy's, you know, this team's best two prospects and beyond that I don't care. We've seen that a little bit with San Diego this offseason where they didn't trade Austin Hedges or Hunter Renfro uh, or Matt Whistler, and so they've been heaped praise on the fact that they were able to retain their top three prospects, but they traded, like, number four through 18 or whatever. Like, they basically <laughs> gutted the middle of their farm system, and everyone's like, well, those guys don't matter at all. This kind of analysis tells you that these guys can matter quite a bit, even if no individual one of them is likely to make it. Uh, out of that group, probably a few of them will. I want to figure out – I want to figure out how to see the Matt Carpenter and Ben Zobrist when I'm watching a college game. I mean, I guess yeah. other, I guess teams want to do that too. Right. I think, I, I think major league teams want to figure that out more than you do. Yeah, but how do you do it? You see, you're watching a game. So Ben, Ben Zobrist played in the Heartland Conference, I believe it was, yeah, right. which was a D, he went to Dallas Baptist University. Right. He's the only player, shockingly, from the Heartland Conference, uh, who, over the past five years to post uh, three wins. And he's done it, um, he's done it every year. Yeah. How do you how do you see how do you know you'll see Ben Zobrist out there? How do you know that that's going to be a not just a not just a you know a reasonable major leaguer that he's going to be one of the best major leaguers? You don't. I mean, I think uh, I think the Cardinals and Rays would even say this. Like you know, if the Cardinals knew that Matt Carpenter was going to turn into this, they would have drafted him in a, in a higher position. They wouldn't have given other teams so many chances to draft him. They would have signed him for more money and. Uh, if the Rays knew that, you know, Ben Zorbis was going to turn into one of the best players in baseball, they wouldn't have waited so long to trade for him. Like, uh, I think what these teams are doing is identifying players with skill sets that have some kind of, uh, undervalued risk reward potential, um, where they say, you know what, we're going to get a hundred of these guys and one of them is going to pan out. And maybe not even to the Carpenter Zobris level, but we think that if we collect enough of these darts and we throw them all, we're going to get lucky once. But in any individual player, when they're looking at these guys, they're going to see the diminished skills. They're going to see the lack of power. They're going to see, you know, this player probably isn't going to make it because of this. And if you say that about every individual player, you'll be right 95 times out of 100. Yeah. But the five times that you're, that the player exceeds your expectations or proves that he has some other ability to develop that is not super obvious at the time you watched him, then all of a sudden you get a nice little surprise. And so I think you can't watch you know, Division Two baseball and pick out a guy and say, this guy's going to make it. But you can watch Division Two baseball or, you know, bad Division One baseball or whatever and pick out a thousand guys. And who are not going to make it? Who are not going to make it. And a few <laughs> of them will. And so that's the thing is you just have to be willing to throw an awful lot of darts. Um, the uh, Did you know uh, that Ian Kinsler, well, he, uh, he, he went to a couple colleges, uh, but he ended up at the University of Missouri, which was then I, in the... So I do know this because I follow you on Twitter. Oh, okay, yes. He was a 17th-round pick and signed for $30,000. Yeah. Did you know that? I did after you tweeted it. That that was a, a shock to me yeah. because he's, know, he's, he's worked out pretty well. Yeah, that's not that uncommon in baseball. Well, I'm figuring out how common it is. Do you know that the well, – you, you do this because you follow me on Twitter um, – that the Pac-12 has produced like all of – they've produced like – Nearly all of the good second basemen that that are currently playing in the game, not all. Yeah, of them. Chase Utley went to UCLA, right? Chase Utley, uh, Dustin Pedroia. Yeah, Arizona. Yeah, Arizona State. Uh, Arizona Jason, State, right? Yeah. Jason Kipnis, Arizona State, and then also right. Ian Kinsler was at Arizona State but couldn't play because Dustin Pedroia was blocking him. They had also, Kinsler, Jason, they, Jason Kipnis was an outfielder at Arizona State. 
Well, I didn't, I didn't even they, know. They can, the Indians converted him to second base after they drafted him. That's right. And where did Ref Snyder go? I think Ref Snyder was Arizona, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but the point is, did, did uh, many of these – see, this has to be uh, – you know, you look – but you only have like four data points, right? <laughs> so you're like, well, is it the fact that somehow the Pac-12 is particularly adept at producing second basemen? Or is it, well, yeah, just a couple guys played second base, and there you well, are. The, the Pac-12 happens to contain schools in warm weather cities of guys that can play year-round and happens to have, have like, party school reputations, which is, you know, baseball players like. Yeah, I, yeah. well, if, yeah. if I were attractive and talented, I would have liked party schools, too. But yeah. Neither of those things, so it didn't work out. Yeah, can the, confirm. <laughs> um, other thing, did you know that Long Beach State uh, has produced – a number of very talented players uh, uh, in recent years. I did. Um, Troy Tulowitzki went there, Evan Mangrea, right? Yes, that's exactly right. And then also, yeah. uh, he's had some trouble of late, but Danny Espinoza had a couple of very good seasons too. Yeah. No, I think uh, the Dirt Dogs, that's what they're called, right? They, dirt uh, Bags. They, dirt bags. bags. Even right. more. Even, yeah, slightly worse. Yeah. Uh, the Dirt Bags have had a, a nice run of talent flowing. Yeah, that is, so that was interesting. There were actually quite a good, uh, quite a few big, uh, uh, big West Guys, um, uh, it, it was just uh, so I do, I've been doing this data entry, and I guess I guess what, one thing I would draw from it is that sometimes data entry is not merely data entry because I've had I've been inputting where everybody came from, and you uh, I learned a lot. I've also learned that conferences have changed quite a bit just in the last ten years. Yeah, right. The Pac-12 used to be the Pac-10. Yes, and TCU has belonged to the four different conferences or something, and so it's like flack. And then, uh, yeah, they uh, were, let's see, what else was there? Was there like, well, the Conference USA, maybe, were they part of that? Yeah, they, yeah, I think so, yeah. And they might have been part of Big 12 at some point. Yeah. Um, and now they're part of, uh, SEC. Oh, they moved to the SEC. I would have thought it would have been, like, part of that Mountain West or something. They, oh, you're right, sorry, they are part of Mountain West now. Yeah. Well, they've been part of a bunch of, a bunch of conferences. They're, like, the baseball, uh, version of a whore. Yeah. If you if I'm if I'm doing the study, would you like to know? So for example, Matt Carpenter went to TCU. Yeah. And uh, when he was at TCU, no, 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 wait. Let me rephrase. They are now in the Big Twelve. They were part of the Mountain West. Okay. Uh, and they were also part of another one. Um, yeah, I think Conference USA. Uh, would you be more interested to know that they were part of? Would you classify them for the purposes of this as part of the Mountain West or the Big Twelve? They're currently in the in. No, they were in the Mountain West. They're currently in the Big 12. But would you I would like probably classify them based on the number of years they were in each conference, right? So, like, if they spent three years in the Mountain West and uh, six years in the Big 12, then they are like 50% Big 12 and 25% Mountain West. And I think you should maybe break it into fractions. I think that that is a bad plan that requires <laughs> more work for me. Okay, well, then I think you should just randomly throw darts and whatever they end up in the end up. All right. Well, I'm just doing it when the, uh, the the conference when the player was there. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. There, you know, there's some D3. Did you know that when Joe Nathan was going to Stony Brook, they were a D3 school? I did not. Yes, they were. They're not now. And also, Chris DeNorfia is the only player to to come out of the new Mac. <laughs> yeah, I can tell this post is going to be a traffic monster. Yeah, it's going to be big. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be big. He came out of the new Mac. What is the new Mac conference? How many players do you think? Do you think that? Do you think that the uh, the new Mac is is where organizations think they're going to be getting a big talent? Uh, I don't. New Mac to me sounds like some kind of like 
fluffy, uppity mac and cheese, right? Like this is a new mac oh, made with Verdi yeah. and Gouda. Oh, that sounds, oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, put right, together, that's what it sounds like. Put together a good sandwich there. Well, I don't think mac and cheese is a sandwich. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it could be, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyways, le- hey, what I'm saying is learning a lot. I'm saying that data entry, it can be a creative act. It can be, uh, that's what I'm trying to say. Mm, okay, well, enjoy your creative act. Colin McHugh went to Barry College, yeah, which is no different than Barry University. It's an well, independent yeah. school in the D, in D3. I can see why he was not a top prospect. Yeah, he wasn't. 18th rounder. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was just clearly uh, it's going downhill, is what I, as I think. It's no, obvious. we crashed a while ago. Yeah, we got it. All right, but you've more than fulfilled your obligation, Dave Cameron. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, that has been Dave Cameron, uh, manager of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. 